0: attentively listening, um, but if any time it ever happened that your mind kind of wandered and you were spacing out or whatever, um, this would be something you could think about. Um, Have you ever wanted to see a miracle? Um, That's the question. Have you ever wanted to see a miracle? And uh, today we're going to study two miracles. Um, I mean, you saw in the video, there was, um, you know, kind of gives it away. All right. But we're going to study that a little deeper. And uh, we're not. I mean, we are going to go over the facts of the miracle of what happened, but more than that, we're going to study what led up to the miracle and then what happened as a result of the miracle. Okay. Um, so our theme for today really is obedience. That these men who we're going to be studying, um, they were very, very obedient to God in their life, in small things, in big things, and that because of that obedience, that obedience led to transformation in their lives, in the lives of people around them. And then that transformation led to miracles. And then those miracles led to more transformed lives and more people living wholly obedient lives to God and transformed. Um, and the thing about these men is that they they really just, in all parts of their life, they gave it all to God and were obedient. And so I want to set the stage here. Um, you know, we've been studying the story. The story, If you see in these pictures up there on the wall. Um, there's 31 weeks or 32, I don't remember, but... Um, We're walking through the Bible in chronological order, I think today is week 18, um, but studying kind of the story of God and following Israel. And so far in the story, we've gone through creation and Adam and Eve and the fall and the flood and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and um, Israel and slavery in Egypt and then moving out into the promised land and the establishment of their nation and prophets and kings. And then now the nation is kind of falling apart. Um, and that is like the really condensed version, okay, Um, but that now we're to the part where um, Israel is is falling apart, and so they have not been obedient to God. There's been a lot of corrupt kings and a lot of sinful living, and then we come to this point. It is the year 605 BC, um, and Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, you don't really learn how to pronounce these words in Seminary. They just make sure, you know, they assume you can do it. Jehoiakim, we'll go with that. He's the king of Judah. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king of Babylon, invades. Okay? Now, Judah, if you, um, most, some of you would know that Judah is one of the tribes of Israel. That Israel is another name for Jacob. He had 12 sons, and these 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. And that Judah, his eldest son, um, by many people, was considered to be the most powerful, the most um, prosperous of all of his um, sons. And that his descendants, the nation of Judah, I guess you could look at it as they were like counties or states or something within Israel. Um, they were very prosperous. And that's where Jerusalem is, in the land of Judah. Um, but that um, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, invades, and takes over Jerusalem. And after Jerusalem is conquered, the invading army hauls off everyone to Babylon. Now, not everyone. But they haul off everyone who they deem um, worthy, everyone they think will add something to their culture, someone who is healthy and educated or someone who's a hard worker or um, would make a good slave or or whatever it is in their minds that something that will add to their culture where they leave behind in Israel the people that they see as needy and weak and just kind of leave those people to fend for themselves. But the people that they think um, in the world's eyes have worth, they take with them. And so they get to Babylon, and among this group are four men. These four men, their names are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Um, And so after they get into Babylon, um, the king calls for a group of young Israelite men to be trained um, in his palace, that they would be trained to work for him and to help um, lead this, this kingdom. And so they're to be trained in language, science, mathematics, astronomy, history, um, magic. Uh, and I, I, magic is one of those ones where I, obviously we're all kind of like, magic? Eh? Um, and so I think there's really not any clarification for that for you today. But that's one of those ones when I get to heaven, there's a whole list of things. I want to be like, what was the deal with that one? Um, but anyways, uh, so they're trained. And as they are trained... The, uh, the Babylonians have a practice of um, changing people's names to Babylonian names to try and assimilate them into their society. And so um, Daniel, he has his name changed. As, um, and his name is changed to Belteshazzar. Okay? Now Daniel, his Israelite name had meant God is my judge. While his new name, Belteshazzar, means Bel, protect my life. And Bel was the chief Babylonian god. Hananiah, his name meant um, the Lord shows grace. This is changed to Shadrach. Shadrach means under the command of Aku. Aku is the Babylonian moon god. Mishael, his name meant who is like God. This is changed to Meshach which means who is like Aku who again is their Babylonian moon god. And Azariah, whose name meant the Lord helps, had his name changed to Abednego, which means servant of Nego, the Babylonian learn, um, god of learning. And so this is, this is really a slap in the face to them, right? That there are these men who, they're Israelites, they're hauled off into captivity, and they have their names changed. And instead of saying, um, hey, Todd, I'm going to say, hey, servant of Nego, all right? That's what I'm calling you now. All right? And that's just day after day. That is drilled into your brain. And so that's the setup for this book, okay? This book of Daniel. that They're taken into captivity. The most promising men are taken to be trained in the castle. And, but while they're there, um, Babylon, uh, while they're in Babylon, I mean, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they serve the king really well. And they, and they prosper. And they're promoted. And they, they rise and rule and rank in that society. Um, but they are very careful not to defile themselves. Um, example of this is when they first arrive there, For they're selected and they're going to be in their training for three years, um, they are to be given the same food that the king eats at his table. Well, this, the, the palace eats, whatever. I'm not sure if it's the exact same food. you know. But anyways, um, it would be like expensive wines... Um, expensive meats, really rich um, food. And for them, as Israelites, they have strict standards, right of of what they eat, what's considered clean and unclean for them, um what's kosher, you know, that kind of word., um, but that they would they would have to decide, okay, are we going to take this food that the the king is giving us, or are we going to stay committed to how we're called to live? And so for Daniel, And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they made a stand from the beginning. They said, okay, everyone else is taking the food that the palace is giving us. But how about this? They say this to their supervisor. How about for 10 days, we only take vegetables and water? And then after the 10 days, you can judge us. And if we are not as healthy and as prosperous as the other men, then we'll start eating what they're eating. So the 10 days goes by. And after the 10 days, not only are they as healthy as the other men, which the other men are probably also Israelites, right, who are in captivity, and they have chosen, you know, I'm in captivity, I may as well eat some good food, and so they've kind of abandoned how God has called them to live. But Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego have not, and they prosper, they're healthier, they're stronger, they're doing better in their training, and their supervisors see this, and so they, uh, they change everyone else. Their obedience leads to transformation, all right? And then this transfer—this was one small step of obedience over a lifetime of obedience that led to the miracles that we'll talk about that you saw in the video and that we'll get to a little later. And so um, let's, we're going to take a look at one of the miracles. Um, I brought with me today some expert scripture readers, if you guys would come up. Um, but uh, if you have your Bible with you, Um, feel free to open to Daniel chapter 3. That's the third chapter of the book of Daniel. And uh, this passage is probably a little longer than we would typically read corporately. Um, So you feel free to read along. Um, They'll be reading from the NIV version. Um, Also, though, um, you can just sit back and just just listen. All right? So this is one of the two stories. The second story, we're just going to talk about a little bit, but we're going to hear from this one directly from the Word. So would you listen?
1: King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it.
2: Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace.
1: Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and people of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up.
2: At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship the image of gold, oh no, (laughs) and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They never, neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up.
1: Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand?
2: Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into a blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up.
1: Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace.
2: Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, your majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here.
1: So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and then the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was the hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them.
2: Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command, and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that any of the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... But, <laughs> Abednego, be cut into pieces, and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way.
1: Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the
2: province of Babel. Ah,
0: that's, that's nice. That's, that's, that's a tough passage to read. That's why I had them do it. <laughs> um, yeah, there's, a. Uh, There's a lot of hard words in this passage, but um, they did a good job. First service, they did a little better. Um, (laughs) But they've already, you know, they're not ditching out. They did sit through the first service. But uh, anyways, so when they set up, there was this story, right, where they make this golden statue, this giant golden statue. And I thought about, hmm, have I ever seen a 90-foot golden statue? No. No. Okay. Has anyone here ever seen a 90-foot golden statue? I assume not. And I started thinking about, well, what about just idols? And and have I ever seen anyone bowing down to an actual physical like idol? And and the answer to that one is actually yes. And I don't know um, if any of you have, but um, I imagine some of you have. I uh, I took a trip to Taiwan when I was I think I was about 22. And I was there with a work and witness team where we were um, doing an English camp there with a a Nazarene church in Taiwan. And part of the trip was visiting some of the kind of local tourist-type stuff. And it was interesting that this was like the tourist stuff. Like we would go and see like a temple or something like that, that um, they have a lot of different um, religions over there. Um, This one was they call like a folk religion where they worship kind of their ancestors. and, And we go into this enormous... You know, um, very very ornate temple, and there's just tourists everywhere taking pictures and stuff. And yet there is also people there who are practitioners of this religion, and they're there, you know, bowing to these these idols, you know, like an actual statue. And for me, that was really um, that was really weird. Just obviously, that's not something you normally see, right? Another another day on that trip, we did a hike up a up a very very steep mountainside. Um, it was about an hour hike. It felt like we were going up a ladder for an hour. There's these very, very steep stairs. We got to the top of this mountain. There's a little temple with a little, little idol in it. And and there's people in there, like, worshiping it, you know. And I remember thinking, that is idolatry. You know, that is so easy for me to identify. Um, but then I thought about, well, we don't have idolatry that is that simple to identify for the most part, in our lives here. But that we have things that we put before God that are a little more tricky to identify. Um, and we're going to get to that a little bit later. But I want you to start thinking about, are there things that I put before God? Things that are idols? I mean, I'm assuming you're not, you know, bowing down to a statue in your home. Um, but that there are things that we do put before God. And so, but back to this story, why would the king even make this statue? Why would the king make a 90-foot-tall nine foot wide, statue of gold. That is a ton of gold. That is more than a ton of gold. I don't know how much it is. It's a lot. And gold is expensive, right? So think about this building at the peak. If you all look up there, that's 22 feet, okay, to the peak. So that's 90 feet, about four, a little more than four times taller than that, okay? They sent in a lot of scrap gold to make that one happen. But that was a huge gold statue. And why Why would the king do this, all right? Why would he waste all his gold on this? Um, now, right before any of this happened, Daniel um, had interpreted a dream for the king. And the king was so amazed that he had promoted Daniel and proclaimed Daniel's God to be the one true God, and then he turns around and does this. But I think that one of the reasons the king did this is because to try and unite his kingdom. As I said, that um, his kingdom was kind of like Um, the great melting pot of their day, okay? That, you know, people come here to America where the great melting pot, right? To, like, immigrate here and have freedom, and we kind of have a lot of cultures assimilated. Well, with their kingdom, they just grabbed people and hauled them off into their kingdom, okay? And that's how they grew their kingdom. So, obviously, a different model, but some of the same things with lots of different cultures, lots of different um, religions, a lot of different stuff going on. And so the king, in the dream, um, that Daniel interpreted There was a statue with a golden head And that Daniel interpreted That this statue would represent All the great kingdoms that were to come And told the king And your king is, your kingdom is going to f- fail It's going to fall And so I think the king He said you know what We need to unite our nation We need to unite our kingdom Under this one thing So if we all worship this idol Obviously the king knows this is a false idol I mean he had it built okay? He knows this isn't really God but that it would be better for everyone to worship this one false idol than to be divided, okay? Um, Also, I think it's just a chance for him to show his power what would happen if people disobey the king. So this brings us to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, right before this happened, as I said, Daniel interpreted this dream for the king. But Daniel went to his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and he told them, you know, pray for me, pray that I can interpret this dream. And so they do. And so when he does interpret the dream for the king, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are also promoted to be rulers in Babylon. And so they would have known that their um, failure to worship this idol would be found out immediately because they're, they're not anonymous people just blending into the society, okay? And But their obedience here, and, and their obedience in many occasions leading up to this leads to transformation. And this miracle, because of their obedience, leads to a transformed culture. And that the king, you know, proclaims, all right, everyone worship their God. This is the one true God. And then, you know, people um, still don't do what they should do. But the, the king, that for a time, the king and this whole group of people are transformed all as a result of their lives of obedience that led up to this transformation and this miracle. Um... Another example of transformation is the miracle with Daniel in the lion's den. And we watched a little bit about it in the video. Um, But basically the story is that um, quite a number of years have passed since the fiery furnace incident. And there is a new king, Darius the Mede. He has become the leader and he doesn't care anything about the fiery furnace. In fact, um, he cares a lot about himself. Um, And he, he wants his kingdom to prosper as most kings do, I suppose. And he knows that Daniel has been very prosperous and that God has helped him in all that he has done. And so he promotes Daniel to be his number one guy. There's the king and then there's Daniel. And then this makes a lot of other people, like probably native Babylonians and other leaders within their kingdom, pretty jealous of Daniel, pretty upset that this foreigner who's been brought in is now above all of them. And so they go to Darius And they essentially trick him into making this law. And in their culture and society, once a law is made, it cannot be undone. This law that only people can pray to him, that he is the new God. And then people can only pray to him for the next 30 days. But the people who have him make this law, they know Daniel. They know that he's not corrupt, that he's going to be obedient to how God has called him to live. And so when Daniel does not pray to the king, you know, they bust him. They take him to the king. And the king knows, okay, I'm stuck. I have to do what I said I would do. And he feels, you know, that he's in anguish because this is his number one person. He knows without Daniel, my kingdom is going to fail. But he has to throw, have Daniel thrown into the lion's den. And I, I saw a lion, a couple lions recently, uh, I don't know, a month and a half ago or two months ago, something. My family went to uh, the zoo in Seattle, the Woodland Park Zoo. And there was like some little lion clubs cubs playing, and they were cute, and then there was a couple of mama lions, and they were scary, and then there was the daddy lion. He was even more scary. And my friends and I, we were like, you know, kind of joking, like, how much money would it take for you to run out there and slap a lion on the rump, you know? And uh, we all decided there was no amount of money that we would ever do that for, because they are scary. They're huge. They have claws, and Daniel is thrown into a lion's den, but he survives the night, okay? And so, when the king finds out, he he go in the morning they go and see, Oh, Daniel is not only has he survived, but not a hair on his head has been harmed, he's totally fine. And so the king then proclaims Daniel's God to be the one true God. So as a result of his obedience, his life of obedience and his life being transformed, that this miracle happens and then his whole this whole kingdom is transformed as a result of that. Now didn't work out very well for the people who set Daniel up and accused him in the first place. Um, And so the accusers are then thrown into the lion's den. And it says that they and their families are thrown in and they're torn to pieces before they even hit the floor of the lion's den. Um, That's kind of scary. So um, this brings me to a question, though, is what if they hadn't survived? What if Daniel had been thrown in there and he'd been torn to pieces before he hit the floor? Or what if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had been thrown in the fire and then they burned up in the fire? Okay? Um, Would it still be in the Bible? I don't know. Um, Maybe. But I think about when you're studying this type of stuff where you're talking about they are living these lives of obedience, their lives are being transformed, the people around them are being transformed, and then God does this great miracle and everyone's transformed and it's wonderful. And then I think about there are Christians who are obedient to God. There's martyrs. I mean, every day in this world, there are people martyred for their faith. And I think, where's their miracle? And first, it brings me to this point of why, why does God sometimes act in these seemingly miraculous ways and sometimes he doesn't? And and in my mind, I pretty much always expect, oh, a miracle would be the best thing in this situation. But I think that God knows what is required. God knows his ways are so much higher, his understanding is so much bigger than ours. That I think he knows what is required to bring the most people to himself, that this life is so fleeting and God knows what has to happen. And for us, we are called to these obedient lives like these four men we're studying They were obedient and lived these holy lives and their lives were transformed and lots of other people were. But ultimately, that is our task. And whether God does the miracle or not, that's up to Him. But we still are called to this life of obedience and holy living. So where does this leave us? Well, back to my question we started with. Do you want to see a miracle? Do you want to see God transform your life? Do you want to see God at work using you to grow his kingdom. And I have to think that just by the mere fact that you are here today, for at least most of you, the answer is a resounding yes. Yes, I want God to use me. Yes, I want my life transformed. Yes, I want the people around me, their lives transformed. Yeah, I want to see a miracle, at least a miracle in people's hearts. I want to see people change. That can be a miracle. So you know what you need to do. Are you being obedient to what God is calling you to Are you living how God is calling you to live? Are you listening to God's call in your life? Now, sometimes we have idols in our life that are obvious, okay? Sometimes these idols obviously keep us from being obedient to God, and then we don't see that transformation. Sometimes we bow down to a 90-foot golden statue. Now, that obviously doesn't happen too often, but there there are sins in our life that are like that, that are obvious sins, okay? Like if I went and stole something from Walmart, okay? Now, I didn't do that, but if I did, that would be a pretty obvious sin. You guys would all say, Stealer, Stealer, you are a sinner, okay? And we would know that that is an idol in my life. Um, not, I didn't do that, remember. But that, that's, there's some obvious sins, okay, that are easy to identify when you say, yes, this is an idol in my life. This is something I'm putting before God. Therefore, it is an idol in my life. Now that, if you have a 90-foot golden idol in your life, that's what that is, okay? If there's obvious sin in your life that is keeping you from being obedient to God, you need to confess that and repent it so God can use you to transform this world for his glory. But then there's other idols in our life, too, that are a little more subversive. And I feel like these are the ones that are a little more tricky, that you don't see someone bowing down to this obvious sin, but you see, I mean, even anything we put before God can keep us from being obedient to Him. And they can be really good, God-given things. Like, I don't know if I should say this out loud, but family, mothers, on a Mother's Day, I mean, even mothers, anything could become an idol in our lives if we put it before our relationship with God. Our jobs, our work, we live in this beautiful place, skiing, boating, um, all the fun stuff we do outside. um, Whatever it is, your sports, any sort of activities in your life that can be really, really good things in your life. If we're putting these things before God, they can prevent us from being obedient to him and having this transformation in our life. So where I want this to go today is this, that we're about to take communion in a little bit here. And in the Church of the Nazarene, we talk about communion as, uh, as a means of grace. And that means simply that it is a means or a way that God imparts grace on us that when we take the elements, that we say, you know what, God, I'm I'm taking communion, but I also want to receive grace from you. So if there is a 90-foot golden idol in your life that you are thinking of, if you come take communion, use it as a time to say, God, I'm sorry for that. Give me grace. Forgive me. And transform me. I want to be obedient to you. I want to be used to grow your kingdom in this world, to spread the gospel. And then if there is some sort of um, idol in your life that, it's, it can be a good thing, but you just realize, boy, I've been putting my work before God, or I've been putting my family before my relationship with God. Then use that as a time to say, God, work your grace in me. I want to be obedient to you, and, and he will reward you for that. Um, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for today. And <clears throat> thank you for your word. Thank you for the chance we have to study it and to learn about how we can best serve you and follow you. Lord, as we receive the elements here, we're reminded that you said that this is your body and blood, broken and poured out for us, and to do it in remembrance of you. Lord, work in our hearts this week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Would you come receive the elements? Well, today, go from this place knowing that grace has been imparted on you and called to live an obedient, holy life. You are dismissed.